Welcome to the Days of Dev podcast. I am your host, Kevin Lesht, and my guest on this episode is Derek Pryor. Derek is an engineering manager at GitHub. Working to improve developer productivity, he and the team have delivered such hits as suggested changes, free private repos, community contributors, and GitHub sponsors. Prior to that, Derek was a development director at ThoughtBot and co-host of the Bike Shed podcast. That's got to be one of my favorite shows, and so I was super excited to have the opportunity of catching up. Our conversation spanned all sorts of topics I've been curious about, and I think we covered them well. From experiences learned, transitioning from engineer to manager, through the unexpected challenges that came along the way, to helpful advice for building a healthy and productive team. I picked up a whole new perspective coming out of this one, and so I hope you enjoy my conversation with Derek Pryor. 44 degrees out of Chicago, Illinois for this one. Derek Pryor is my guest. Derek, want to welcome you to the show and ask if you could set the scene for us. Can you give the listeners out there an idea of where you're at right now and what the weather's like out there? <laughs> sure, absolutely. I'm in the basement of my house in Massachusetts. Uh, it's early December, so it is cold. There's snow on the ground. We got snow earlier, so uh, my kids have been out enjoying the snow, and uh, I've been out clearing the driveway. Hey, that is my kind of weather. And in Massachusetts, you are from Boston. Is that is that right? Uh, I, I mean, I, I, people who are actually from Boston would take issue with me saying I'm from <laughs> Boston. But uh, for the purposes of people who live outside of Massachusetts, sure, I'm from Boston. <laughs> I grew okay. up in, cent- in central Massachusetts, and now I live uh, I live just north of Boston. Yeah. You know, I was out there uh, not too long ago and went to this restaurant, Neptunes. Have you ever been to, to Neptunes? I have not. It's a fantastic spot. Uh, great crudo. Easy to get carried away on Crudo, though. Going to need a sponsor for the show here to help cover the bill that we tallied out there. But let me tell you, highly recommend the place. Highly recommend Boston in general. Uh, such a cool spot. You know, looking around at all of the, the buildings out there, a lot of craftsmanship, you can tell. And I know that somewhat recently on craftsmanship, you have taken up woodworking was curious about if you're still keeping that up as a hobby and if you've had any projects uh, of note lately. Hmm, projects of note. Yes, so so the answer the answer is not as much as I would have liked probably. Um getting settled into a new job and some new teams at my new job, which we'll probably get into a little bit. Um kind of kind of took a lot of my energy. Um But I'm still very much into it. I've done some small projects. I made a pretty cool bench, uh, which I'm Mm. very proud of and sits out on my front porch. Uh, It's it's not the most comfortable sitting bench, but it's really nice to look at. Uh, (laughs) So I did that. I've I've signed up for some courses uh, on some online courses that are kind of like take at your own pace kind of things. Um, really like that. Uh, my wife has been asking me to create some floating shelves for our family room. So I'll be, um, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to get into that very shortly. Um, the other thing I really like about woodworking is, uh, is 
it's probably no surprise to a lot of woodworkers is, is the gear. I like all the equipment. Uh, so right now I'm very much uh, in shopping for a table saw mode, which I, I've set okay. out. I've set out as a uh, a prerequisite for the for the floating shelves that that uh, my wife wants done. So uh, I'm spending a lot of time investigating table saws and things like that, and deciding between uh, you know the cheap get it cheap get yourself started saw and the more expensive uh, saw that prevents cutting your finger off. So <laughs> yep, yeah, good uh, good thing to research there. Make sure you get the the right one. Yeah, yeah, probably go with the cheap. Don't go with the more expensive. Don't cut your finger off. <laughs> right, um, you know. Yeah, as far as coursework goes too. Have you ever watched uh shows like This Old House? Is that a Oh, I have a This Old House story. I love that show. I've loved that show ever since I was a kid. Like I like that show. There was another show called Home Time that I watched all the time when I was like in high school. Um I just like watching people I think what it comes down to is I like watching people who care a lot about their work. Yeah, uh, and are and like to talk about it, which maybe is related to why I do a I did a podcast for quite a while. Um, but at one point, when my wife and I bought our first place, we were having a problem with the floor, and I sent a picture of it and an email to like ask this old house, and like months went by, I never heard anything. It was just like a lark, right? And and ended up, um, you know, many months went by, ended up having it fixed, like paying somebody to come in and fix it, and. Uh, Maybe a couple of weeks after we had it fixed, I get a phone call and it's from a producer on Ask This Old House who was like, we wanted to talk to you about your floor. And I was like, no, I fixed it. <laughs> <laughs> that so is... I, missed, I missed my shot to be on Ask This Old House. Yeah, that is fantastic. The only thing that surprises me about that story is I would have imagined it's the the carpenters themselves that are like in my head, I would have imagined they all seem like such down to earth people that they're the ones like reading the email inbox, like getting back to everyone who writes in. It was somebody uh, who definitely identified themselves as a producer, but it was also somebody who clearly knew what they were talking about. Cause he was he, like, he wanted to know what the fix was. And he was like, yeah, that sounds right. Like, that, like, <laughs> yeah. So it was still somebody definitely trained in what they were doing. That is great. Yeah. The, uh, this old house, there's, um, there's an episode with Nick Offerman, the the comedian famous for Parks and Rec yep. and all, all sorts of other good stuff. Uh, he's a carpenter, too. And he comes on the show and he says something to the extent of if you take a bucket of nails and a few planks of wood and you slap together a doghouse, congratulations, you are a woodworker now. And I love that quote. And I love what's behind that quote, uh, just the idea of anyone can dig right into something and immediately embrace that thing as part of their identity, um, because I think it applies closely to to software development as well, you know, being able to scrap something goofy together with some raw materials, and then just as you might pick up some new tools, new table saw, or, or some new technique with woodworking. You know, same goes for furthering, furthering any piece of software, uh, too. And to help out those looking to build maybe their first doghouse, and also to help those looking to maybe build out an addition, or even just, just keep the thing standing up, I thought we could focus our conversation here around things like onboarding and things like ongoing processes as well uh, with your experience coming from um, a long tenure as a consultant at ThoughtBot, now working at GitHub and everything else you've been involved in. 
And and so maybe to begin, I wanted to dig right in to an article that that you forwarded my way, which is give away your Legos and other commandments for scaling startups by Molly Graham. And you know what's funny? I've read this thing twice now, and the first time I certainly picked up that, and I think I sent you an email after I first read it, and certainly picked up that it's framed around offering advice towards those building out a team and and the pain points that you can run into when, when doing such a thing. But I read it through my lens, which is someone who has experienced a team scaling from the inside. And my takeaways were focused, you know, around the perspective of me, where my role certainly has evolved, but not in the sense so much um, of moving from a contributor to that of mainly a, a people manager who's not involved in the code base as much anymore. And then I have a conversation with one of my mentors, uh, my boss, Dave Junta, and he saw a whole nother layer there that was positioned around more of what I'd like to talk with you about. And that is the transition from an engineer, an independent contributor in a code base, to that of more of a manager, someone who is focused um, less and less on driving forward that feature work. So I'd be curious to learn about your transition there from engineer to manager, and also maybe stemming off that too, some of the difficulties that that you may have noticed and faced uh, in that move from being an engineer to graduating towards that of a manager. Yeah, absolutely. Where should we start? Hey, there's a lot to dig into there. Uh, whatever, whatever hits you first. Yeah. So, I mean, I sent you that article, and I, I had a lot of I had reactions to it. I, I can't. I'm pulling it up now. I'm trying to see like maybe I'm misremembering, but I feel like I read this a while ago. I'm trying to find like a publication date. I, I really don't like when they don't like put a date prominently somewhere. Yeah, um, I have it up as well. I didn't. I didn't see a lot of uh, metadata like that in there at all. And maybe maybe I'm misremembering, but I I recall reading this quite a while ago uh, in different circumstances and finding things that spoke to me about it, uh, and then reading it again under recent circumstances and finding similar things that spoke to me in different ways. Uh, and so I think that like yes, it is ri- is written from a like this is how scaling a startup works, but to me it's really about any to to what what speaks to me about it is any time in your career where you go from having total control over something or, or, or the illusion of control over something to, uh, or, or comfort control or comfort, I guess, um, to, uh, handing that off to somebody else so that you can do a thing that is like, maybe you don't even know what the next thing's going to be yet. Or, um, maybe, maybe you're scared of what the next thing's going to be. Cause you're not quite sure you know how to do it. You know, you're good at the one thing you're doing right now. Um, that type of thing. So when I like, in line with your question there, I kind of makes me think of like, you know, when I originally joined GitHub, it was to come from, I had been a director at ThoughtBot, which is kind of a, it is a people management role, but still very much also billing on client work. Um, and the, the people management you're doing is more like mentorship and coaching than it is like managing somebody's direct work because they're out on client projects and things like that. So I came to GitHub and had a good grasp on the technical pro on the technical bits of the project we were working on, but it wasn't clear to me immediately. Like what is, what are the higher value things I should be doing as a manager? Like what are the things, maybe not higher value is probably the wrong word, but like what are the things that I as the only engineering manager on this team should be doing that 
and leaving the stuff uh, that I'm doing that it really any of the four other developers on the team can do um, for them to do. And so I struggled with that at first because it wasn't a I I wasn't sure it, what it was I should be doing, and B doing the development was something I was confident in. Right, so I was like, oh, I I know how to do this. Uh, I know I'm good at it. I see very much that like the work I'd like to do is neat. Like somebody needs to do this on the team, so I can do that. Um, and over time, sort of had to pull myself away from that to realize that like I'm not. I, like I should be, I should be letting the four other engineers on the team do most of this, and I've been slowly stepping away and and trying to focus on other things. Um, and I just recently kind of went through a similar transition on uh, the team on one of the teams that I've been working closely with for the last, oh, I'd say uh, something like six months or so. Um, I'd been working with somebody who, uh, her name's Katie, Katie Delphine. Hi, Katie. Uh, she wanted to become an engineering manager, had been an engineering manager previously, wanted to become an engineering manager at GitHub, but was currently in an IC role. And so she let me know that like as soon as she joined the team, that that was something she was interested in. And um, so we started going down a path of like, okay, well, if you're interested in that, here's the type of work that engineering managers do at GitHub. I can like hand this over to you. Um, and I can delegate this to you and you can start doing some of that work. Uh, and that worked really well, but there definitely was a moment in there, uh, a few months in where it was like, Katie's doing such a great job at this. What if they don't need me anymore? <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> what am I going to do? And the article has that very specific, like fear. It, it confronts that very specific fear in people. Like if this person does what I'm doing right now, very like so well that they're ready to take it over, what do I do next? Um, and reading this article just sort of reminded me that like, there's always other things for me to be doing. And part of, part of my job is to find people who can do, uh, things that I'm good at as good or better than I can (laughs) and that that's okay. There's just so much to dig into there. Um, wrote down a couple points that I'd love to circle back on, but maybe to first play off of that last piece you just mentioned, which is there's just so much to learn out there. And I think embracing that whatever lane you are currently in has so much to offer is a huge thing. I think back to my first read of this article when I was approaching it from the position of just an independent contributor and not thinking of that that um, perspective of of a manager i was i was reflecting back to my time as a consultant more so a design consultant my background delivering essentially marketing sites backed by content management systems to uh to clients small businesses and startups and i remembered back to you know i can't remember how many it was at this point but there was definitely a stretch where i was first starting out that, you know, you build these sites, you invest so much time into the design of them. And then by pairing them with a content management system, you sort of need to because you don't want these clients unless you're looking for that residual work to call you up for every copy change or like image substitution or anything like that. But by giving that flexibility, you know, that first stretch, it's painful when you know, you see some clip art subbed in for like, the image that you search for for hours to, to just fit the theme so nicely. Uh, but then I guess you go through a few of those reps and you eventually, I think, I don't know if you just internalize that this is a thing and you've just got to let go and hand it off and remove yourself from it or, or to circle back on what you said, just also realize that there's just so much out there, you know, let that one go and focus on, on what's in front of you. Um, 
But I definitely, I definitely remember that that feeling of, of attachment to to the deliverables that I was handing off, and I do, I do think that was that was difficult to shake for a while. The other points I wanted to circle back on were, you know, you mentioned that for a while when you were first starting out, you had to figure out what exactly you should be doing. But then it sounds like when you had one of your teammates come to you and mention that she wanted to move from an independent contributor to manager, by that point, you had a good idea of the work and you were able to relay what that scope of responsibility would look like as far as making that move. So I wonder for those senior engineers out there, could you speak a little bit to those that are interested in pursuing a management track? Um, How can they go about getting a feel for the practicality of such a position? Yeah, um, I think by the time that you know, Katie had Katie and I had that conversation. I had a better idea. And and being an engineering manager is different at a lot of different companies. Like there's there's some folks that where you'll purely be a people manager and you'll have product and project managers who handle like the planning of the work and things like that. And there are some roles where it's a sort of a hybrid, like it is a GitHub. Uh, at GitHub, my role as an engineering manager has like uh, I manage the projects and I manage the people. Um, and those are kind of two separate, like those, th- there's a case to be made that those are two separate roles, right? So for people that are interested in, you know, what's it like to be an engineering manager, there's, I think that's pretty common for engineering managers to play both of those roles. So we'll, we'll pretend we're in that world for everybody. Um, and what I suggest is two things. So number one, the easiest thing as a senior IC or senior individual contributor to, to, to get experience in is, is leading projects on your own, right? So, um, handling things like the project, handling the project management aspect, right? Um, making sure, you know, you take large stories and break them down into smaller stories that you can disseminate among the team, uh, being accountable for reporting like high level status to, you know, any stakeholders might be at your, your manager or, you know, um, other people in the company that kind of want an update on what's going on in the project. Um, Basically allowing, allowing, like, I know somebody's doing a really good job of this. If I can just say like, oh, that project, um, yeah, I know, ex- I know what's going on on a high level. And if you, you know, be- because I've been, I've been apprised and if you want details, then yeah, just go ahead and talk to so-and-so. I know they're doing a great job on it. They'll give you all the details you need. Um, and so I think that that's probably the easiest part of the work for a senior IC to, to maybe even already have been doing that without even thinking about taking on the management aspect, right? It's common for um, ICs to step into that role. And then the second part, which is harder, I think, to dip your toes into like this is the people management aspect of it. Because um, you, can, you can tech lead projects which give you taste for the planning, but how do you how do I know what it's like to manage somebody, right? To have somebody bring me their interpersonal problems or, um, you know, frustrations with promotion and things like that, that might come up. Um, and so I thought a little bit, I've thought a little bit about this. And I think the, the easiest way for most people to get this experience is like, if your organization has interns or junior engineers or things like that, uh, volunteering to mentor them, uh, and spending time really like not just being like, yeah, yeah, I mentored the junior engineers. I help them handle their tickets. And that's what mentoring means to me. But actually digging in and spending the time about like, what does it mean to be a good mentor? And then going further than that, like, how does mentoring somebody differ from coaching them through something? Um, and when is it appropriate to do either one of those things? So really showing a care for that aspect, like you show um, like you show that you care for the technical aspects of your job, right? 
um, because that's going to start to give you that experience of of what it's like to to do those things. And if you can imagine doing that for a, if you can imagine doing both of those things for a team of somewhere between four and eight people or something like that, then you know you, you'll have a good idea of what it looks like. That is super helpful. Yeah, I'd love to to dig more into the the mentoring, the coaching angle of things and all that comes with that. But maybe before we move there, one thing I'd be curious about too, I think what comes with making, or at least seemingly what comes with making that shift too from going about working within the code base to then this position of working more indirectly in the code base through your your juniors and your mentors has got to be just a lot of surprising and unexpected changes i think to um it's funny there's an episode i just listened to of the jason calcanis his his podcast um he's interviewing i believe it's alex mccaw who is the ceo of a company called clearbit and they talk about something similar which is you know issues individuals face um when they move from their focus position so say coding engineering to that of management and it's a thought pattern that that can sort of be a trap which is you know you you maybe see some some difficulty some challenge um, happening out there, and the person who was previously maybe a high performer as an independent contributor falls into this trap where they start thinking, oh, you know what. I was able to get through this by by putting the team on my back. You know, I took the ball, I put it in the basket, and we won the game. So maybe I need to, you know, insert myself into this problem a little more closely and, and try to solve and try to just solve this, take this on myself. But he mentions that, you know, what gets you to that level of maybe a high performer as an independent contributor doesn't necessarily translate to then being an effective manager, an effective uh, leader of your your junior, your apprentice level, or or even you know more senior members of the team as you become a a, a more developed manager. And so I'd be curious what if you faced any challenges like that, and what attributes, what what tactics maybe helped guide you through those situations. Yeah, I mean, I think you you hit the nail on the head with that story there of like the first time there's. The first time there's any sort of adversity that you think that you, you know, previous individual contributor, you would have like saved the day, right? The temptation is to be like, okay, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm become player coach here. Right. I'm going to step, I'm going to substitute myself in and we're going to get this over the line. But that ro- that really robs your team of a growth opportunity to like face, to face that adversity and play that role that you had played previously. Uh, or maybe have a couple people together play that role that you were play, playing previously, which is probably more healthy, frankly. Um, so you're robbing that team of that opportunity, and you're also robbing yourself of the opportunity to coach them through these things, right? This is the skill that you're going to need to develop um, because you will not – like when you first become an engineering manager and you have a small team with a small number of projects, you have time to do that, frankly. You can you can – you can become the player coach for a little bit where you need to, but then as you take on, as, as you become more successful as a manager, the company is going to find more ways to put more people and more projects under your purview, uh, and you're just not going to have that opportunity. So that doesn't scale, um, and the people who are looking at your successes and failures above you may not recognize that. Oh, the reason you're succeeding is because you're actually not managing this team. You're just, you're just kind of like player coach, I guess. I'll keep, I'll keep using that metaphor. Um, so that was that's that's one thing I definitely um, experienced, and in my case, like it was a little, it was as I mentioned before, it was a little bit of a conscious effort to be like I should probably be finding the things that 
you know, are uniquely things that my people in my position are supposed to be focusing on um, and leave the coding work to other people. But it was also kind of brought on by uh, just like more of the non-coding work came up that needed to be done. And as I understood more of how my work fit into GitHub and things like that, recognizing that like, oh, there's this to be done. There's this part to be done. So it's a combination of a conscious choice and, and just being forced out of it. When I think about challenges of becoming uh, uh, of of transitioning to management, there was there was one thing I wasn't ready for at all, <laughs> and like because I because I had thought a lot about uh, when I transitioned to management, like do I do I want to do this? Do I want to become further removed from the code, or do I want to? You know, those were challenges I was anticipating. Uh, what I hadn't anticipated uh, is that it can be a very lonely job. Mm. Um, so. You know, if you're the type of engineering manager that's still regularly committing to code, then you have that camaraderie with the other developers on your team. But the as you as you start removing yourself from doing that, you find yourself uh, that like you're the only person doing the work on, on your team that's doing the work that you're doing, right? So if you have um, just a silly idea you want somebody's i you want somebody's opinion on about some process thing that you're thinking about trying out with the team or something like that. Um, there's nobody with your exact context to turn to and be like, hey, what do you think about this thing? Like you can when you're doing development work where you can say like, oh, I know you were just in this part of the code base last week. I got this idea for how to approach this thing. What do you think about that? And sure, there are ICs on your team who would love to weigh into that, but like they're not thinking about it from the same direction you're thinking about it uh, uh, as somebody that's in your exact role. Um, so that was one thing that I, I didn't even really recognize that that was a hurdle for me until... Uh, until I started working with Katie closely on that team and she was taking on more and more of a manager role and we, and, and through her suggestion, she was like, why don't we set up some, like we have our weekly one-on-one -on -one time. We have some great conversations there, but why don't we also set up some like weekly manager pairing time where we would either just have an extended conversation about what was happening or we would like dig into actual tasks. Like we would do some backlog grooming together, right? It's not fun. It's not like, <laughs> it's not the most fun pairing I've ever done, but it was just like, Oh, there's so many of these issues I've been looking at and been like on the fence about what to do, what to do about, and just having another voice here be like, no, no, your intuition is right. Do that thing um, was super valuable. So the lesson I took from that really um, is that when you're be going to become an engineering manager, it can be very, you know, your default thing is to your default mode of operation here is probably working with your direct team of like I don't know three to six developers. Maybe you have a designer, or maybe a product manager, or something like that. It's a very like you've got your group of people, right? Um, but I think you need to be intentional about also making sure you're networking with other engineering managers, finding time to do, you know, I think the engineering manager pairing idea was, was brilliant. Um, you know, finding, finding people to put in your circle of engineering manager trust and, and just, um, and making sure you help you, you develop those relationships as well. Holy cow. That is, that is super revealing. I feel like it is a, until that, until that, until you're exposed to a perspective like that, I mean, it's hard for me to empathize with something like that just because I'm not there yet myself of that. You know, you mentioned earlier in, in that piece there that you, and you're totally right, you know, when you're an engineer, if you hit a tricky problem, which is mostly going to be related to something technical, you there's, the, there's a camaraderie there. There's a team around you to help triage that, to help work through that. But I think to people, I assume, you know, 
issues of people management are are certainly more complex and and way more unique to their their surroundings that yeah you, I can I can now see the um, the angle of loneliness there that could come from that um, I think there's also a large part of this that is um, interwoven with also working remotely right so like you have like it's not that you know when you're when you're co-located uh, with with your with your company, right? Um, you will have with, 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 uh, with no effort on your own part, you will have a uh, chance to speak to other people in your role. Right. And you'll just have those natural conversations. But when you're, when everybody's at their house or at their co-working space or whatever, um, it's just a little bit more friction to get that conversation started. Like you got to be like, Hey, is now a good time for you to jump on a call with me? Right. I'd really love your, I'd really love to get two seconds worth of your time. Um, and so that's why I think having something like when you're, if you're going to do this remotely, I think it's probably more isolating. Um, and so it probably pays to, to just have like some regularly scheduled time with people that you, uh, that you trust as, as other engineering managers and that you want to kind of build as build your circle of trust with. Absolutely. Yeah. That sounds like fantastic advice for those in those um, positions. It makes me think of too, I want to have some conversations now with product managers because when I was thinking about, when I was trying to build sort of some laterals to to what you were saying there, since I'm not uh, in that position myself, the only thing I could sort of quickly pull up was I have to imagine, I wonder if product managers feel this way where Typically, a product manager is going to be working within a domain of a business and their problems are going to be somewhat specific to whatever discipline that is they're focused on, whether it be maybe marketing or some other uh, some other channel. And yeah, I wonder if they fall into that similar situation where there's, there's a loneliness of, you know, how do I break down this ticket or how do I work with this stakeholder? And, and, and I'm, sure, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot to be um, maybe learned between engagement from both sides there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I have found that like, um, on, on the teams that I work with, the product manager has been a good partner to, to also address some of this loneliness with like, like we don't, we don't have a very, with the product managers I've worked with, we don't have a very strict, like, Oh, that's the engineering manager's job versus this is the product manager's job. Other than like, you know, the product manager doesn't manage my people, but when it comes to the work, uh, we, we have, we, you know, uh, the product manager might break down tickets. The engineering manager might break down tickets. The pro, you know, uh, the engineering manager might make a few product direction decisions. Uh, by and large, the product manager makes those decisions. But like, I would find myself in situations where I'd be like, oh, faced with a question, I'd just be like, oh, that's a product decision. And when you say like that's a product decision, um, you're thinking like, oh, the product org makes this decision. Product people make this decision. But when you think about saying it like, oh no, that's Devin's decision. And you're like, well, Devin's just one person. She might want to talk through this, right? Like, <laughs> there's nobody else. Like, yeah, there are other product managers at this company, but nobody else has the context. Like, I'm I'm probably the closest person that she should talk to about this. So maybe we should get on a call together because uh, I have some of the context. And I can just be, you know, I can just be her rubber duck in that case. And even if I think this is a decision that is largely in her court, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. But I, I have to imagine, you know, I haven't specifically brought this point up to the product managers I work with, but I have to imagine it's it can be similar. It, it can be a similar experience there. And I know for, like, again, not specifically having brought this up to designers, but I remember, you know, I'm hearkening back to my days at ThoughtBot. And I remember how excited designers were when um, they worked on projects that had multiple designers, right? Because most of our projects had, 
uh, two to three developers on them and like one designer. But every once in a while, we'd have like two to three developers and two designers. And it was like the designers always love that. Uh, it, it makes 100% sense, right? And and like the projects where we did only have one developer, like people would complain to me like, I don't want to be the solo developer on this, right? So um, we're, we're social people. So <laughs> even if you're introverted or extroverted, just having that social support is important. Yeah, it seems like too the calling back on a few things that we've talked about so far, a thread across all of them seems to be embracing your situation and and just understanding that it's a new experience, it's a new thing to learn from and to take on as a challenge. Even going back to I think where this this conversation here started, you know, when you're in a position of management and you see some adversity out there, you know, rather than than jumping in and just tackling it yourself, looking at it looking at it in the sense that this is just a new a new different kind of challenge and that you have to now figure out how to solve this from a different seat um as far as those new challenges and new experiences go you mentioned during an episode of the bike shed podcast that every time you would start a new consulting project at thoughtbot it was like starting a new job and so drawing from your experiences there, I was wondering if for a little bit we could dig into some of the things that have stuck with you in regards to what makes for successful onboarding and and two sides to that topic that I'd be curious to hear about, those being um, things that organizations can be doing to better that experience and also things maybe individuals themselves can take on to, to help, you know, the next new hire get up to speed a little quicker and, and make just the whole end to end process better for whoever joins next. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, I remember, I remember saying those things about, uh, feeling like I'm starting a new job every time I start a new client project. And, and I think that, I remember that episode and I think I was largely thinking about it from a perspective of like, oh, I'm always starting a new job. I'm always figuring out how to run new projects. I'm always like, I was thinking about it from a very technical aspect and, and a little bit from the like, how do you figure out what process a team is using to ship things and and things like that, a, a little bit of that. And so my advice on that, which I still definitely believe strongly, but is a little less applicable to me day to day is like, hey, teams should have setup scripts, right? I should be able to like clone a repo, run run a script and it should work. Uh, from, you know, if particularly like a lot of teams just use like one type of hardware, you're just using Mac hardware for local development, then it should just be like super simple to get started. Right. Um, and if you can, ideally you should be like even testing that script as part of your CI, because you're only ever going to run it when somebody gets a new laptop or has to nuke their setup or a new person starts. So it might not be run regularly, uh, but it's super valuable to have those, to have that available to you at all times so you don't you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time a new person starts where they're like oh nobody's run that script in uh three months it might not work yeah um so those i think were the original angles i was coming at that from but lately you know i've been thinking about this more organizationally like you mentioned uh thinking about it a little more broadly and so like the questions i think about are like um how do you make new employees or team members like maybe they've been at your company before but not on your team how do you make them feel part of your team um, and then how is that impacted by remote teams? Uh, because, you know, I work, we work remotely at GitHub. So, um, and then things like, uh, what kind of information do they need to know? That's not like the technical information that I just talked about. Like, is there cultural information that they need to know? How much information is too much to give somebody at one time? And how do you, mm -hmm. how do you remember to circle back and give it to them at the right time? 
um, how do you create sort of this onboarding ramp experience? And I think that's related, right? Where you're just like, I could throw a whole bunch of information at you at once, or I could create this like, hey, it's week one. Here's some things that have been helpful to people in week one. It's week two. Here's some things that have been helpful to people in week two uh, and things like that. So I've been spending a lot of time on those questions. I don't know if we want to dive. Should we dive into some of those? <laughs> hey, I would love to. Yeah, I'm super curious too about how, especially with the remote angle, um, how that plays into junior developers coming aboard. Uh, you know, we talked about earlier developing those those mentorship uh, and coaching, uh, the distinction there, and also developing those relationships. Um, I'd be curious about how those line up and and how what your perspective is against how those fit into the onboarding process as well. And, and what are some curves maybe that even a remote relationship uh, throw, throws in there? Yeah, definitely. Um you know, one of the realizations I had working, this is my first job working full-time remote. Um, you know, I'd had some client projects where I was remote from the client team, but, um, you know, those were pretty short-lived and it's different when you're a consultant. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there were a couple times where I realized like, oh, you know what's hard about about mentoring or coaching uh, junior or less experienced developers at GitHub is that at ThoughtBot, I could look across the room and and Thoughtbot had a very has an, one of those open office plans, so I can literally just look across the room and be like, "That person looks stuck," <laughs> right? And I can pick myself up, walk over, sit down, and be like, "Hey, what's going on? Oh, you're struggling with that? Oh, let's just sit together and let's just like figure it out together, right?" And a little bit related to like what I was talking about before with like the loneliness of being an EM sometimes, right? It's just like it takes it takes a little more effort when you're remote to like make sure you're checking in and make sure they know it's okay or or even just saying like, hey, oh, yeah, let's just jump on a Zoom and let's look at let's look through this together. Let's talk through it. Um, that kind of thing. It takes just a little bit more effort. I think that's the most I can say about the remote aspect of that. The mentoring and coaching part, like once you once you get over that inertia. And you actually start the conversation. Um, I think, you know, remote teams, it's a little bit harder to build the foundation of trust, I think, that's needed. Uh, or, or trust and familiarity, I think, you know, because you, you lose those chance for just the, uh, the everyday run-ins at the water cooler, at the lunch table, and things like that. So um, I'm conscious of that, trying to make sure that, you know, the first few one-on-ones we have, I focus a lot more on, like, tell me about your, tell me about your life. You know, um, I remember my first manager at GitHub, Nada, she very, like the very first question she asked me in our, in, in our first one-on-one was tell me your life story. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I, like, I don't start with that because I was paralyzed by that. I was like, what do you mean my life story? How much detail do you want? When should I start? Right. Should I start at birth? Do you want to know? Like, <laughs> do you want to know my professional story? Do you want to know? And she was just like, whatever you want to tell me. And I was like, oh my gosh, I was just totally overwhelmed. But I appreciated the angle that the question was coming at. I definitely appreciated the question too. It's just like my personality was like starting to panic about that a little bit. Um, but the the angle she was coming at was just like, it's we have so much time. And I've never really specifically talked to her about this. But in my experience, what I'm thinking that she was coming at this for is we have so much time to cover the nuts and bolts about getting work done here at GitHub. But none of that's going to matter if like we don't know each other as people and trust each other as people and respect each other as people. Um, and so getting to know like, 
oh, where do you live? What's it like where you live? What's your office look like? What's your house look like? I, I took a, I took a, uh, somebody reports to me, Mike, I took him on a tour of my house, like with my laptop. And it's just like, really? yep, this is my, this is my, uh, this is my living room. Here are my kids, like <laughs> you know, the whole thing. And I think things, silly things like that are important. Um, cause just like forming those, forming those personal bonds. Uh, and then the rest of the stuff, you know, once you have that foundation of trust, then you can move on to other things. Um, where you can get into a little bit than a little bit of, of of the nuts and bolts and things like that. Yeah, I think that making sure those it sounds like um, for fully distributed teams, um, each individual sort of sort of shares that same um, situation and that they are remote. And so there's a mutual understanding there that everyone is trying to close that connection. I think even it's even more important for teams that might only have a single individual or a couple individuals that are remote. Uh, we have at Home Chef, um, a couple coworkers who are full-time remote with the majority of the team being in office. And I know something that um, w- during our retros, we uh, my close team has gotten feedback on as appreciated was, you know, just bridging the gap by forwarding on some of those, you know, those funny things or even even weird, you know, happenings that might play out in the office. Uh, One thing that comes to mind is I've been known to crank out a side project or two of questionable substance and, uh, you know, just forwarding those along. You know, I might spin up over the weekend an omelet blog. It wouldn't be a podcast episode if I didn't self-promote the omelet blog out there. Um, Even sending that along, you know, check out this thing I built over the weekend or forging some personal connection that is outside of just, you know, the back and forth of everyday work. Um, I think that, you know, something that I can only look at as a person who is in office and surrounded by my coworkers, but could absolutely see as um, really help you know to r- connect with with the, the you know um, the person behind behind the computer there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think we have it in many ways. We have it pretty good at GitHub, and that you know there, there's still a lot of people. There's still I think what is it something like thirty thirty five percent of the company that works from the San Francisco office. So there's still a large chunk of people who work in the San Francisco office. And I've had I've worked on a couple of teams in the year and a half or so I've been at GitHub where uh multiple people were located in the San Francisco office. But it's it's um it's not the norm, at least on engineering. So um I think we're pretty used to even when there are two people that are in one place and the other people are not, uh m- so much of the cultural stuff happens in slack or in zoom and things like that like uh, when you were talking i was reminded of a conversation i was having just i think it was yesterday in one of our slack channels so we have our we have our work slack channels where we talk about work and funny things related to work and then we just have our like off off topic channels where we're a little more free uh and one of the things i was talking about was like hey um you know my family really wants me to set up a wish list for Christmas. And I ha- like, I literally think that I have everything I could possibly need and I hate doing this. What are some cool things that like you've gotten as gifts or like that you have in your life that are like less than $30 that I should put on my wish list? Right. It's like, like silly things like that stuff that you might talk about at a, at a lunch conversation, but just making space to have that. Um, or like people sharing pictures of their dogs and their cats and uh, people people learning the names of each other's dogs and cats and kids and wives and uh, yeah. things like that. 
I dig that. Yeah, drop the uh, drop the omelet blog in there for me. See how <laughs> see how see how that plays. I will. Yeah. I will. <laughs> no, I think it's helpful though to to get a sense for everyone's personality because I think it then does play back in the work that that we do. Um, you know involve ourselves with every day, you know, one of those being uh, pull requests, you know, maybe one of the the final things that we could step through here is I do want to get you back to, did you say you were shoveling the driveway before the show started? Oh, no, no, uh, that was yes, that was yesterday. So okay. dri- driveway shoveled, we're good. Yeah, well, then the woodworking project then. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah sure. uh, so much to dig into here. One thing I didn't want to leave um, the session without hitting was you have a talk out there that is implementing a strong code review culture. Um, Love this talk. Think that uh, it'd be beneficial for anyone joining a team to check it out. It's focused around just how you can carry yourself um, to develop you know, productive conversations within a pull request. And yeah, circling back, I think that the, you know, just getting a sense for everyone's personality can really help you um, sort of maybe understand what what might be going into someone's comments. I think back to one of my coworkers who once said that, uh, you know, if you ever have to leave maybe a, a dicey PR comment, just tack some emojis on there to sort of like lighten the blow. But I think maybe it was sort of said in jest, but I think what your, your talk frames out better is there's a better way through all of that, which is maybe incorporating something like the Socratic method, which is framing things more around questions like, you know, what do you think about this? Or um, is there, you know, things along those lines and really liked the advice you offered there um, and was wondering, you know, that talk was a while ago and we would be curious about, um, you know, now a few years later, um, wanted to challenge you a little bit as an extension of that talk. Say you're framing your questions as best as you think you can, you know, in a um, productive way. And maybe, you know, the pull request author isn't necessarily receptive towards those suggestions, or there's, or maybe even the, um, the commenter isn't, um, there's a difference of opinion there. Um, Wondering, you know, from your lens of a manager now, what some tactics individuals can maybe invoke to, to try to resolve and just promote amenability in those situations? Yeah, sure. Um, the first thing I recommend to people is to stop trading comments on GitHub if it's possible for you to do that. Um, once you've gone back and forth, like once you've made an original comment, there's been a follow-up, you made another comment, and there's been another follow-up, you've probably gone about as far as you're going to get uh, with a comment on GitHub. <laughs> um, and so once once things reach that point, I generally try to say like, hey, maybe just have a conversation about this. Hey, why don't, why don't, uh, you know, why don't you, John, Sarah and I get on a call together and we'll, you know, I'll just get you guys, get you all, I'll, I'll get you all kickstarted and and then I'll, you know, I'll recuse myself basically. Cause I, I don't want to, I don't want to insert myself as the arbiter either. Right. Um, and you know, one of the things I've learned through trial and error here is, is one pattern that's easy to fall into is like, Oh, okay. So, you know, John and Sarah are having a disagreement on this pull request and I'm their manager. I'm John's manager. I'm Sarah's manager. Well, let me meet with John and get John's side of the story. Let me go meet with Sarah, get Sarah's side of the story. And then somehow through that, like present, present to them parts of each other's story and hope that it works out. Like that's, that's, that's not, or, or what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to make a decision? I don't 
you know, it's not, it's not really my, I don't think that's my job. Right. Um, so I think instead it's more productive to just say like, let's just get people together and let's talk about whatever the issue is. Let's come up with a path forward here. Let's make sure that each, that like, you know, John, can you represent what Sarah's, what, you know, I, I might not be as formal about this here, but you know, you might say like, John, can you start by telling me what you think Sarah is saying? Right. Sarah, can you tell me what you think John is saying? Why is this important to each one of you? What do you think the consequences of going one way over the other are? You know, if we're, if we make the wrong decision here, how will we know? Um, and what will the cost be? Those kinds of things and trying to center those things and ultimately falling back to, uh, you know, one of the values we, I took from ThoughtBot in code reviews is the ultimate decision on what to do lies with the person submitting the code. Right. So ultimately, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to be the one that deploys this code. You're going to be the one that's uh, going to respond when something goes wrong, hopefully, uh, if assuming it goes wrong quickly after you deploy it. <laughs> Sometimes you deploy time bombs. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's on you. Um, and if if and by and large, I think that I think that's enough for most things is to say, like, yeah, we've had a conversation about it. I hear you. I'm going to go in this direction. As long as we've had that conversation, some of those, if, if, if particularly if it's contentious, some of those points that I was talking about just earlier, as long as we've had those conversations, that's probably going to work out okay. If it doesn't work out okay and it keeps working out not okay, say like, you know, John just keeps messing up, <laughs> not taking Sarah's feedback and he just keeps messing up, then we're into more of a coaching mentorship kind of like uh, situation where it's like, okay, you know, I was, we, we had this conversation you know, why things keep breaking in the ways that Sarah's predicting they're going to break. <laughs> you know, what do you think we should do about that? Um, yeah. You know, we need to see some improvement there. So, yeah, I mean, I think that just, again, so much of this boils down to communication uh, and kind of knowing when to say like, you know, let's, let's just have an in-person conversation if we can or an over the internet conversation. Let's just change, you know, we were doing text, let's do voice. Um, let's just change that a little bit. Yeah, it made me think back what I had paired with this question that I had written down that I think plays into, right, whether it's a PR comment or a conversation along along those lines is I can't I, I can't place where I picked this up from, but it was it was an article focused around um, productive um, technical conversations, and it was like whenever you are leaving feedback, it should have purpose, direction, and motivation. Meaning that there should be a good reason for why you're picking out this this piece of code to comment on. Uh, it should have some direction in that you certainly, as you mentioned, don't want to solve the problem for the author themselves, let them um, embrace that challenge. But you should give some direction towards whatever you're, you're getting at there. And then also some motivation, you know, maybe why it would be beneficial to to change, whether as you mentioned, if it's like a recurring problem, you know, maybe some behavior that could be better there, or if it's just a one off thing, you know, here's, um, here's a performance gain we could benefit from or or something like that. Um, so yeah, so much to to dig into there. Maybe maybe we set you up for a sequel to to your talk there. Uh, I'd like to see it. I'd also like to see another episode here. Uh, I think I think we'll have to tee one up again in the future. But as we wrap up this session here, Derek, do you have any any parting thoughts reflecting on our conversation here for this our listeners out there? This was a lot of fun. If you want to do it again in the future, I'd be happy to do it again. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's it. I think um, 
you know, if there are people out there that are interested in kind of towing that line between management and individual contributor, I hope that uh, hope that uh, I was able to offer some sort of clarity there or some sort of uh, helpful advice. But uh, I love talking about these things. So if people want to, if people want to reach out and 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 just get a stranger's opinion on the internet, I'm happy to happy to help out. Hey, no, that was fantastic. And with the year coming to a close here, I certainly am going to pull quite a bit of this into my own performance review. So I appreciate it. (laughs) And I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining the show. And thank you for your time. Ah, Thanks for having me. For show notes and more on this episode, head on up to the site. That's dayasadev.com. While you're there, check out our release notes. This is a short newsletter that we send out about once a week. It includes updates along with all sorts of other goodies packaged up for your inbox. Thanks for listening. For the Day as a Dev podcast, I'm Kevin Lasht.